It is good to be with you. We will be continuing in our series in the book of Job, Sovereign Suffering. Last Sunday, if you were with us, we studied Bildad's first speech in chapter 8, where he admonished and kind of even rebuked Job to repent of his alleged hidden sin so that God would restore his rightful habitation. In the next section, we will look at Job's response to Bildad. It is recorded in chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Job. In 1969, that's the year I was born, by the way. Anyone else born in the 60s here? Bruce is like, I was born in the 20s. What do you want from me? Yeah. He's not that old. Yeah, I was born in 1969. But anyways, in 1969, an interesting thing occurred. A, a bolt of lightning struck and damaged the Arizona home of a gal named Betty Penrose. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with that story from then. In 1970, her attorney, which was also her boss, because she was like an aide to this guy, Russell Tanzi, he filed a $100,000 civil suit against God for negligence and mismanagement of the weather on her behalf. And and the deal was that if God did not show up in court, his client would win by default, God would be liable. Now, Mr. Tanzi was pretty clever. He would try to collect the money by attaching a claim to some property that had been deeded to a Christian group. Now, when that day in court came, God did not show up physically. I mean, he is omnipresent, so he was there in a sense, but he did not show up physically. Betty wins the case by default. Mr. Tanzi goes after this Christian group in Marin County, of course, California, right? Because that's probably the only place in the nation where you can win a case like this. Goes against a Christian group in Marin County that had recently acquired a piece of property through donation. And legend has it, we're not sure exactly, I couldn't corroborate this, but legend has it that Mr. Tansy was able to seize that property and give it to his client as payment. Now, I mentioned this bizarre, strange, weird, and really unholy, irreverent account because Job had a similar intent. He believed that God had mismanaged the universe in some sense specifically his own life, and he wanted to take God to court to prove his innocence, reverse the injustices that were causing his suffering, and bring an end to the unmerited attacks of his friends. The language used by Job in chapters 9 and 10 are literally that of a legal trial. Now, what caused this bizarre thinking in in Penrose and Tansy, greed, foolishness, but what caused it, this kind of same mentality of taking God to court, suing him, in Job? I'm pretty sure it was pain. The pain that he was experiencing through the, the, the losses that he encountered and experienced. Dr. Steve Lawson wrote, pain can distort even the best minds, causing them to draw exaggerated conclusions that are far removed from reality. Such was the case with Job. In the midst of his agony, he pressed for his day in court with God. He longed to have the opportunity to prove his own integrity. Perhaps God had mistaken him for someone else, or maybe the wrong sentence had been assigned to him. Whatever the case, Job began to express his demand to appear in court before God and to plead his case with the Almighty. I think Lawson is right. Pain had distorted the mind of Job, which caused him to draw false conclusions, many. He concluded that that God was punishing him. This was untrue. He concluded that he was being treated unfairly by God. This was untrue. God was actually If you can believe it, God was actually honoring Job by using him to prove to Satan and to all creation that his true people worship him for who he is, 
not just because of what he gives them. So, so Job was not, uh, these weren't injustices. Job was not being treated unfairly, although according to our standards, it would appear so. But God was actually honoring him by using him as a vehicle to shame the devil. He also concluded that he needed to defend himself against Bildad by proving himself right before God. This also was untrue. He had nothing to prove to God or to Bildad or anyone else. He was a blameless and upright man. No need to prove himself to anyone, especially God. As Job fantasized about taking God to court, he began to realize there were some obstacles in his way that he identifies in this chapter and in the next chapter in our text. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning, 1 through 12. I had every intention of actually teaching through this entire chapter, all 35 verses, I believe, and there was <laughs> by the time I got to verse 12, I was at like eight or nine pages already, and I said, it's not happening. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. We are going to look at the first obstacle that he identifies here, the predicament of God's infiniteness. The predicament of God's infiniteness. You're probably saying, I hope you explain what that means. I plan to. I hope that you can understand. Let's pray before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves now and ask that you illuminate our minds, that you unstop and open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, and illuminate our minds as your word is proclaimed. Uh, this is a vital lesson that we need to learn today from your word. Or we might be tempted to do the same thing that Job did in some weird sense. We certainly hold things against you. We certainly blame you at times for, for, for not handling our lives the way that we think they should be handled. And so I know that somehow Job's cry to you through this text, this desire to show up in court against you in a sense, I know that it will resonate with us in some way. So we pray, Lord, that you open our hearts, minds, ears to the word. Teach us this morning, and may you be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday and begin with that first obstacle, that first point. Number one, the predicament of God's infiniteness. We see this in verses 1 through 12, the whole text. But I'd like to begin at verses 1 and 2. Here's what Job says immediately following Bildad's just devastating speech. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be made right before God? This is truly one of the great questions that's ever been asked. It really is. And I like what Job does here. He really begins by acknowledging the truthfulness of some of what Bildad had said. Job, Job is unwilling to dismiss everything that Bildad said. He was unwilling to dismiss a lot of what his friend said to him. And here he does acknowledge some truthfulness that's represented in Bildad's words. Remember, there is a lot of truth packed into this, into this wonderful book, but we just know that these truths were misdirected. They were aimed at someone who, whom they, they applied to in a, in a general sense, but these corrections and this idea of you need to repent, it didn't apply to Job because he was right with God. He didn't have hidden sin. So it's, there's a lot of truth in the letter. It's just misapplied when pointed at Job. Job agreed with Bildad. He, he knew that, that the godless do perish, as Bildad had stated in chapter 8, verse 13. But the question was not about why the godless perish or any of that. The, the question at hand, and that is it at hand through the entire letter, is, is it why was Job suffering? He was not godless. He was not a pagan. He was not an unbeliever. He was blameless and upright. That's Job's question to these men. That's Job's question to God throughout the entire book. And Bildad suggested that Job seek God and, and plead with God for mercy and, and reestablish a right standing before God by proving that he is truly pure and upright. Chapter 8, verse 5. Job was thinking, how could any man make himself right before God? 
How is that even a possibility? What you're suggesting is, is an impossibility. How could you even say that, Bildad, that I need to somehow make myself right before God so that he will relent? It was an impossibility to Job for, for him or any man to do this. He believed that no man has the ability to do this, to make himself right before God. And guess what? Eliphaz agreed with him, chapter 4, verse 17. I think Job understood to some degree that, that only God can justify or make right a man before himself, that that is a work of God and God alone. And that's why he is, how, how, you're suggesting something that I cannot do. What Job wanted to do is to take God to court, argue his case, and prove his innocence so that God would relent and end his suffering because he believed that God is sovereign and that the suffering must have come through the sovereign God's hands. But this idea of taking him to court and proving his innocence that you know, God might relent and end his suffering, this whole idea, this, this whole plan that he has here, he felt that it was really nothing more than a pipe dream, a mere fantasy. The predicament Job thought he faced was God's infiniteness. Like, I would love to carry out this fantasy of mine to show up in court and, and plead against God and probably win the case, but, but I don't think I could even begin to really consider that because he is infinite. That's Job's hang-up. What is infiniteness? It is a divine attribute. You know God has divine attributes. And his infiniteness is an incommunicable attribute, which means that it belongs to him alone. God has communicable attributes that He imparts to His people. Like when a person is, is, is first made new and given a new heart, becomes a believer, you know, begins to follow Jesus, God communicates to them some of His attributes, attributes, the attributes of love, the attributes of goodness, the attribute of, of kindness. These are attributes that God imparts or communicates to His people. But His infiniteness is... A, attribute that belongs to him, him, him alone. He does not give it to anyone else. We are, however, finite. He is infinite, infinite. We are finite. When we speak of God's infiniteness, we are referring to how He has no beginning or end, right? We think of His eternality. Psalm 90, verse 2. We think of how God cannot be calculated or measured, Right? He is beyond all things. He transcends all things. Jeremiah 23, 23, and 24. When we think of God's infiniteness, we are thinking of how He is not constrained by physicality or geographic location. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. I recall a verse where I think it was King David or Solomon, one or the other, was considering building a temple for God, and they said, well, how is He even going to indwell it? He can't be held up in a temple he, he is transcendent. He goes beyond all things. We think of, when we think of His infiniteness, we think of how He is limitless in holiness. He is holy, 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 right? Uh, we see His limitlessness in holiness in 1 Samuel chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 2, and in many other places. We also think of His greatness, right? His limitless great, uh, greatness or power. We think of His limitless knowledge, all of these things, holiness, greatness, power, knowledge, without any measure at all, just, just going beyond and transcending anything in all creation. Psalm 147, verse 5, it's the psalm that Bruce read. When we think of His infiniteness, we think of how He is limitless in wisdom. There's no limit to His wisdom, Job chapter 12, verse 13. When we think of His infiniteness, we think of how His sovereignty is limitless, Psalm 115, verse 3, and so on and so forth. Infiniteness means that, that God is not bound by anything. He transcends all things. He is perfect, utterly perfect, no flaws, utterly holy, holy uh, utterly great. That's the infiniteness of God. And Job believes this is what was getting in his way of taking God to court and suing Him. 
God's infiniteness was one of the obstacles that prevented him from trying to take God to court. He was unlike Betty Penrose and her attorney in that regard. Amen? Somehow they thought they could take the infinite God to court. <laughs> Job describes his understanding of God's infiniteness in verses 3 and 4, really throughout the whole text, but 3 and 4, it's uh, really uh, concentrated. He says, if one wished to contend with him, speaking of God, Wood could not answer him once in a thousand times. <laughs> he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? What a profound, powerful verse or set of verses. Job tells Bildad that if a person wanted to argue his or her case before God, they would be unable to answer God's cross-examination. If God asked a, a thousand questions, they would be unable to answer even one. God is infinitely wise. God is infinitely brilliant. His brilliance transcends all things. How could Job, if, even though he wants to take God to court, how could he take and contend with God, a God who is infinite in this way? A God that has infinite wisdom, a God who sees things completely different than Job and understands things completely different than Job. In all completeness, he understands things. God is infinitely wise, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely brilliant. And Job says, I'd like to take him to court, but that'd be stupid. You know, it's God's infiniteness in regard to his wisdom and knowledge. This is why theologians call the Bible baby talk. Did you know that the Bible is actually referred to as baby speech or baby talk? You're, you're, when you hold a Bible, you're, you're, you're holding a book that was essentially written to little babies. This, this book right here has confounded the greatest minds since it was written. And yet this is God's baby speech to His people. God coming down to the level of, of toddler to speak His word to us. And yet this is the most brilliant, captivating, mind-blowing book I've ever read, and I've read a lot of books. That's baby talk. That's baby speech. What happened in chapters 40 and 41 of Job where God actually cross-examines Job? You know, that's what happens. I mean, in a sense... This entire book, whenever Job speaks, it's as if he has God in court and he's pleading his case. And in chapters 40 and 41, God actually cross-examines. He speaks up for the first time and he cross-examines Job. It's like Job is representing himself as his own attorney and then God finally speaks and cross-examines him in 40 and 41. How did Job respond in chapter 42? Well, the, the scripture says so clearly that he contended with God and gave wise and intelligent answers. Oh, Oh, no, that's not what it says. I'm sorry. I've been mistaken. That's not what it says at all. It says this when God cross-examined Job, right? It says he confessed his ignorance, despised himself, and repented in dust and ashes. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Job, in a sense, takes God to court, argues his case, and then when God speaks, all he can do is feel entirely foolish and ignorant, and repent in ashes. That is the infinite wisdom, the infinite knowledge, the, the brilliant speech of our God. He is infinite. And Job tells Bildad that God is not only infinitely wise, because that's essentially what he's been saying, but He is infinitely powerful. There's no limit to His power. He asks a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Has anyone ever hardened themselves against God and succeeded? The answer is very obviously no. No one has ever done this and no one ever will. God is, is infinitely powerful, infinitely wise. No one, no one can even question Him. And the point, really, and I will be saying this frequently, the point, so you can understand what Job's literally saying here through his poetry, through his complaint, through his case, the point, 
How could Job possibly resist in court the infinite Almighty who is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and transcendently and infinitely brilliant? Job's like, I'd like to do this, but it's a moot point. God is infinite. Verses 5 and 6, he continues. He says, He removes mountains, and they know it not, when He overturns them in His anger. Verse 6, He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. This is an example of God's power here, His infinite power. Job tells Bildad that God removes mountains without their knowing it. And you think, well, I guess this must have happened long before I was ever around. Well, it actually happened in 1980 in Washington State. Mount Saint, one-third of it removed with one blast. Well, that was the natural occurrence of the lava and the hot magma and the blah, 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 blah. You don't think God just went like that to a mountain? God removed part of that mountain. God did that in Washington State in 1980, way back, way back. He causes earthquakes. He shakes the earth from its place. He makes the earth's pillars tremble, Job tells us. This is beautiful poetry. An, an awesome example of God's awesome, infinite power. We see these truths throughout the Bible, Isaiah 13, 13, in reference to the coming day of judgment. On that day, God will make the... Heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. And in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord of hosts declares, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. This prophecy is actually repeated in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26. Again, the point here, how could... Job or anyone possibly resist in court the infinite Almighty who has this infinite all power. He just flicks his wrist, flicks his finger, breathes from his nostril, and he removes mountains. He shakes the earth. He, he causes its pillars to tremble. If Job appeared before God, he wouldn't resist. He wouldn't argue. He wouldn't speak. He would tremble like the pillars of the earth. He continues in verse 7, God commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars. Job tells Bildad that, that God commands the sun and the stars. You know why the sun shines? Because God tells it to shine. It's not just a scientific equation, just a bunch of gas in the middle of it that just keeps burning. God causes it to burn, to shine. The stars shine, the stars burn because God tells them to burn, to shine. And they burn out when He tells them to burn out, right? They become a, a red dwarf and then a white dwarf. We see this truth in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, in reference to the coming day of judgment. On that day, God will command the stars of the heavens and their constellations not to give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light at night. The point, how could Job possibly resist in court the infinite Almighty who commands the sun and the stars, the entire universe, an estimated 100 billion galaxies, according to research through the Hubble telescope. 100 billion galaxies. The one who controls all of that. How could he possibly take this infinite God to court and say anything? Verse 8. He alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Job tells Bildad that, that God alone stretched out the heavens, and He is the true master and commander of the seas. He stirs up the waves and He tramples them down. 
We see these truths in Psalm 104, verse 2, where God stretched out the heavens like a tent. In Isaiah 42, verse 5, where it says, The Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. In Isaiah 51, verse 15, where it says, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its, so that its waves roar. And in Mark 4.39, where the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, calms the waves. He, he tramples them under His foot of a turbulent sea, the Sea of Galilee, with three simple words, peace be still. Bam, the storm is gone, the waves are gone. The surfers are like, oh man. The point, how could Job possibly resist the infinite Almighty who stretched out the heavens, who stirs up the waves and the seas, and who tramples them under His mighty foot? How could I sue that God? Verses 9 and 10. He made the bear and Orion, the Pallades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Job tells Bildad that God created the constellations. Bear is also called the Big Dipper. We've all seen that one. It's the only one that I can actually point out without an app on my phone. Orion is, is one of the the brightest and best-known constellations in the night sky. It lies on the celestial equator. It is named after a hunter in Greek mythology. Pallades is also called the Seven Sisters. It's part of the constellation Taurus, right? Taurus is part of the zodiac and is located in the northern celestial hemisphere. It is among the, the star clusters nearest to Earth. The chambers of the south may refer to an assemblage of brilliant stars that could be seen 20 degrees above the southern horizon of Job's homeland of Edom. It is also called Hadrithemon. We see this truth in Amos chapter 5, verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the night into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name. The Lord is His name. Job tells Bildad that, that God does innumerable, great, and marvelous things that are well beyond searching out. This is a reiteration of Eliphaz's statement in chapter 5, verse 9. The point, how could Job possibly resist in court the infinite Almighty who created the constellations and suspends them on nothing and who does absolute innumerable great and marvelous unsearchable things? How could I possibly take this God to court? He'd like to, but he knows that would be an exercise in futility. Verse 11, Job continues to explain the infiniteness and, and just incredible power of God here. Verse 11, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Job tells Bildad that the infinitely powerful God is invisible, a spirit without a uh, without a, a physical body. We see this truth in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, other scriptures as well, but there it says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We see it in John chapter 4, verse 24, where Jesus declared God is spirit, meaning that He is invisible. He doesn't have a material body. And those who worship Him must worship Him how? In spirit and in truth. When God passed by or moved on, Job detects nothing. This God who is infinite in, in every imaginable way is incredibly stealthy. He is in this room right now. But if He moves, I can't tell. There's no brush of wind Nothing of that sort. 
Job's point, how could I possibly resist in court the infinite, almighty, and invisible spirit who cannot be seen nor perceived? I mean, how is he going to stand up there in front of one who, the only way that you know he's there because he's invisible is because of the glory emanating from his presence. But it's not like he can stand in front of him like he's a man and argue his case. He even talks about this down further in the text. He's not a man that I can contend with, he says, or something of that nature. And then lastly, verse 12, Job says, He snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? What are you doing? How many of us have said that to God? What are you doing? I can't pay my bills this month. My business isn't doing very well. They shut down the state because of a flu. What are you doing? How many of us have said these things to God? Job says, who could possibly do this? Maybe we ought to learn from him right now. Lastly, Job tells Bildad that Basically, what he says in verse 12 is that God does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, without question. I mean, that's the privilege that you have. When you're God, that's your prerogative. Remember the song, it's my prerogative. It's God's prerogative to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, without question. There was a horrible reference because that guy was a bad guy. Screwed up Whitney Houston. If God snatches something away, if He, if he removes something, if he, if he takes something from, from, from us or from anyone or from creation or, or whatever, if he, if he takes something away, no one can take it back from Him is what Job tells us. And I think he's thinking, well, my wealth, my family, and my health, God has snatched those things up. I can't get them back from Him. In fact, he says that not only can we not take back from him what he snatches up, but we can't even question him on the matter. I mean, I guess we can question him, but he's not going to answer it. He doesn't have to answer us. God doesn't owe us answers. He's given us all the answers we'll ever need. Right here in the baby book. Goo goo gaga. He's essentially telling Bildad that God is not restrained in any way by Man, a man-made system of right and wrong. God is not constrained or restrained by any sort of system of morality or whatever it is that we would construct. He's not bound by the things that we come up with. He does not follow our standards. Guess what? He is the standard. He's the standard. And He doesn't have to comply with our standards he laughs at our standards. And boy, are our standards becoming more and more twisted in this nation. Wrong is right, right is wrong. Male is female, female is male. It, it's all screwed up. And somehow we think he's got to honor this. Well, he's going to judge it. He has judged it. Romans 1. We see this truth here, this truth that, that Job is presenting to Bildad. We see it in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6, which says, You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. In Isaiah 43, 13, it says, There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? The answer is the obvious, no one. And I love the way that this truth is is put in Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? The point once more. How could Job possibly resist in court the infinite Almighty who does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, without question. And because He is infinitely righteous and infinitely holy, 
everything he does, no matter which way we perceive it, is perfect. It accomplishes his will on earth, which is perfect. But sometimes that means it's difficult for us. It certainly was for Job. It's hard to believe that I'm already at my closing remarks. Who wants to come up and preach a second sermon? Job? I mean, Job. Job, are you ready? No, I'm not preaching a sermon in front of God. Are you ready, Bruce? I'll try, to, I'll try to take my time through this ending. It's okay because, look, it was either this or try to do the whole text. So it was either maybe a 40-minute sermon or a three-and-a-half-hour sermon. And Rich Petro's staring at me right now. I'm not looking at him. I'm not making eye contact with him. I know what he's thinking. Don't you do it. For Job, for Job, God's infiniteness was the predicament, was an obstacle that prevented him from trying to act out his silly lawsuit, his silly fantasy of taking God to court, right? The moment that he begins to consider that, he remembers the infiniteness of God and says, I'm, I'm, that was a stupid thought. That was a stupid thought. I wish Penrose and her attorney had thought that. I would like to put it this way, Job's thinking, the Almighty was simply too almighty to be drugged into court or dragged into court by Job, right? The Almighty was just too almighty for that. <laughs> That's Job's view. And guess what? Job was right. He was right. He was right to self-correct. He was right to express how he felt, right? Because we need to learn from him. But he was also right to stop and say, ah, be sober-minded, buffoon. You're not, you're not taking the infinite almighty anywhere. You're not going to meet him in court and argue your case, dummy. Thank God he corrected himself here. He's a godly man, remember. He was right. And this is a lesson that I believe we must learn from this text, right? How often do we actually stop and ponder and consider who God actually is before we approach Him or before we act and live and do what we do? How often do we do that? When's the last time you considered God's infiniteness? Maybe you've never even heard a sermon on that attribute. If, if, if we were like Job, because we do come up with these ideas, especially when we're under duress, especially when we're in the midst of emotional, spiritual, physical pain, whatever it is, we do come up with some outlandish, goofy things. Lawson is right, right? He is. We do that. We think and do stupid things in the midst of great pain. But if we could just, just stop for a moment and remember who God is, maybe we would, we would not actually sin against Him because that's what we end up doing. The infiniteness of God should terrify us. It should terrify Cameron. He has this disorder where, where there's something that's, it, 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 like if he's standing at the sea and he sees the, the massiveness of it, it freaks him out, right? Thank you for letting me use your example. Later I'll hear from him. He's going to be saying, why did you say that? I, I kind of have the same thing. I went to the Grand Canyon. I was standing on the edge looking at it, and it just scared the tar out of me. And why would we not feel the same reverential fear of this infinite almighty God. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord, not just the grace of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord that should drive our obedience and our godly behavior. Even Christians should have a healthy dose. In fact, Christians are the only ones who can have it, as a matter of fact, any true fear of God. We are to revere Him. We are to fear Him in a sense. Not that He's going to brutalize us under judgment because He brutalized Christ for us. But we should still have a reverential fear and respect for Him. And if we had that, if we just pondered His infiniteness just for a moment, I, I believe it would maybe we would change course in those moments where we're about to do something we believe we're not supposed to do, but we're, we just want to do it anyways. And we remember the words of Job here, and we say, I'm not going to do it. God's infiniteness should deter us 
from imagining foolish, irreverent notions about God. He is not someone we can drag into court and sue for mismanaging our lives. You know who mismanages our lives? We do. It's not God that mismanages our lives. He has given us the management book, the Baby Talk Management Book. I'm going to rename the Bible that. This is Him speaking to us down at our level so we can understand and Him telling us how we ought to live our lives. And He tells us if we live our lives according to what He has laid out in this book, you will have your best life now, but it won't be your easiest life now. His law is in place as boundaries to maintain our joy because if we live out His law in the power of the Holy Spirit thanks to the blood of Christ, then you will have a, a wonderful, joy-filled, purposeful life. It's us that mismanage. It's us that mismanage our finances. It's us that mismanage everything. We're the ones that do this, not Him. We're to blame. And maybe others, too, that have an impact on us around us. God is not someone we can drag into court and point our finger at and try to persuade Him to go in our direction. He's not someone we can resist, strong arm, or bend. He is the infinite Almighty. What good would a God be that you can just bend around your finger? How's He going to help you in your time of need? i got to unbend Him. His infiniteness is what makes Him so particularly special. But I'll tell you, we mustn't let our puny, puny, infantile understanding of His infiniteness dissuade us from seeking Him altogether as some are in the habit of doing. This happens that somebody has a just a, a small understanding of the infiniteness of God and, and they see Him as, as being too big and, and too busy to deal with someone like, uh, like me or like you. And, and, right, this is where, this is where we, we... I don't think you can ever go too far with the infiniteness, but, but it, the infiniteness of God doesn't make Him unapproachable. And sometimes we think that, well, He's just too big and too busy for a peon like me. I mean, if he's literally what, what Job says here and what this, this baby book says, if he's literally that, then how could he possibly have time for a shimp like me? Have you ever thought that? I have. What did David said? You've made the universe, the stars and all that. What, what, why are you mindful of man? What, why, what would possess you to be mindful of us, especially since we've turned against you? We need a, a, a good understanding of infiniteness, but we need to understand that it doesn't make God unapproachable. It doesn't mean that God does not desire or want to be intimate with us. He does! God is not too big, too busy for folks like us. The incarnation shouts that He is approachable. And the cross shouts that He has made intimacy a reality. Intimacy with Him a reality for all who believe, for all who repent and trust in Christ. He sent forth His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to earth, to be born of a virgin, to, to live a, a perfect law-abiding life, to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, to be buried to rise from the grave on the third day so that we could be what? Cleansed and forgiven and have God as our Father and enjoy intimacy with Him forever and ever and ever and ever. This is what He sent Jesus to come and do. God's infiniteness is not a predicament or obstacle that makes Him cold and distant. That's the God of Islam, that He's just... Allah is just so big and so massive and so awesome that, that He lives somewhere out in a remote area where you really can't get to Him or have any hope of having any kind of intimacy with Him. That's Islam. 
That is not the true God. God's infiniteness is not a predicament or obstacle that makes Him cold and distant. His infiniteness proves His perfections, that He is perfect in love. And I don't think that we can even get our mind around what perfect love is. We aim for it as Christians, but the minute that I think I got it, I treat my wife like garbage. And there it goes. He is perfect. His infiniteness means He is perfect in love. He is perfect in mercy. He is perfect in grace. And He will, and He is perfectly willing and able to hear our prayers and answer them in accordance with His will, provided that we pray in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. Philippians 2.9, John 14.13. In fact, the Lord Jesus has become our great high priest. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He invites us to approach the throne of grace through prayer with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. One of my favorite passages. So God is infinite, and yet He is approachable. And He not only desires intimacy with His people, He forged it on the cross through the slaughter of His Son. Don't allow the infiniteness of God to cause you to think that you can't approach Him and come to the throne of grace. Don't you dare begin to think or think that your sin can keep you. Well, His infiniteness means that He is infinitely wrathful toward our sin. What does this symbolize? That He satisfied His wrath and His justice for all who believe through His Son's work. He's still infinite, but He is altogether lovely and graceful toward His people. Your sin, your sin, don't think that your sin prohibits you from drawing to the throne of grace. What do you think that text has to do with? What do you think weaknesses are there? There are struggles with sin. Humbly come to the throne of grace. His infiniteness doesn't keep you at bay. You know that text in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, where Jesus says, come to the throne of grace confidently. We need to know that this is a solemn promise to His people. It is. But the question this morning is, will we accept it? You know, just because there's a promise out there doesn't mean that you have to accept it or that you will accept it. There are promises in the Bible that, that are there and, and, and we need to embrace them. So this, this invitation to draw near to the infinite, awesome great high priest, Christ, Jesus Christ, it's a solemn promise. The question is, are you going to take Him up on it? Or are you going to keep thinking that He don't have time for me, He's just too big and busy? Or my sins are keeping me from Him, He can't deal with, with my sins. He dealt with your sins on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is an insult to God to consider or to think that somehow our sins are beyond the scope of His forgiving power and atoning power. That is blasphemous. Jesus died an all-sufficient death, made an all-sufficient atonement for your sin. So the question is, will we accept this promise? Will we approach the throne of grace through prayer with confidence and receive what we truly need? See, we're always in the habit of thinking we know what we need and taking it to God and never getting it. And that's usually because we're asking for what we don't truly need. God at the throne of grace gives us what we truly need. Do we accept that promise and go confidently? 
Or will we continue to think that God is just too big and too busy to listen? Or that He is too cold and distant to care? He is neither. He is neither. The choice is ours. What are you going to do? Are you in a time of need? What are you going to do? Accept the promise and run to the throne? Or continue to look up and say, you got nothing for me. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even bat an eye at me. Who do you think he came to, sent Jesus to die for? You know? The weak of the earth. <laughs> so what do you do? Go to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. and It doesn't seem like baby talk. And the fact that it is baby talk just further proves Your infiniteness, Your greatness, Your brilliance, Your wisdom, Your knowledge. God, I pray now that if there's anyone here that has a problem with you because of the way their life is going, I pray that they have learned through this text. As Christians, we need to quit asking why things happen to us. We need to start asking how we can grow from these circumstances, these situations, how we can become better ministers to those in our communities, even under our own roofs. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that if there be anyone here today that has not yet repented and trusted in Christ, that they would do that, that you would lead them to do that, that they would realize that your infiniteness is an absolute terror to unbelievers, that you will unload an infinite level of wrath upon those who spurn the cross, trample the Son of God underfoot. Father, lead them to repentance this morning. Father, for those of us in this room that have been just kind of wrapped up in some sinful pattern, Father, I pray that you convict us now. Help us to understand that, that you covered those sins on the cross and that even now you invite us to come to the throne of grace in this time of need. Father, may we do that. May we accept that promise. May we experience that promise. May we be made new and refreshed by that promise, of that mercy and grace that you freely give. Lord, may we do everything you've instructed us to do this morning. May we be doers of the word, not mere hearers. We pray in Christ's name.